And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Welcome, everybody, to a new show on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Cliff Waldman, and you are listening to the third episode of Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman. As I've done in the past few weeks, let me tell you a little bit about myself and about my vision for this new program. Currently, I'm the CEO of New World Economics, a research and consulting firm in Arlington, Virginia. We specialize in manufacturing, in entrepreneurship, and in frontier markets. Prior to my work with New World Economics, I was chief economist at MAPI, the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. So I have a strong background and an affiliation with the manufacturing sector. I have done and continue to do quite a bit of public speaking, mostly on manufacturing-related matters, demographics, automation, productivity. And I'm taking an active role these years in the economics community. I'm serving as the president this year of the National Economist Club. What about the show? Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman is going to do for the U.S. manufacturing sector what the manufacturing sector does for the broad economy. We're going to look under the hood, and we're going to push the envelope. We're certainly going to cover the headline stories of the day to generate understanding of their considerable impact on manufacturing performance. You know the issues. These include such front-burner issues as the changing U.S. and global economic outlooks and the increasingly difficult geopolitics of trade. But we're also going to go beyond the headlines to focus on forces that are catalyzing rapid structural changes in the factory sector. The key word here is new. New science, new markets, new economic thinking, new companies, and new industries. We're going to consider the contribution of each to the emergence of a new manufacturing story. Our guests are going to be the best in their field. I'm going to be speaking to top economists, knowledgeable scientists, prolific authors, as well as executive from innovate, executives from innovative goods-producing companies. In sum, we are offering the best people to give insights on the cutting-edge dynamics of the U.S. manufacturing sector. U.S. manufacturing deserves no less. And in keeping with my promise, today's guest is absolutely one of the best in his area of thinking. I can spend the entire show talking about Rob Atkinson's background. As founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, recognized as the world's top think tank for science and technology policy, Dr. Atkinson leads a prolific team of policy analysts and fellows that is successfully shaping the debate and setting the agenda on a host of critical issues at the intersection of technological innovation and public policy. For superb, in-depth reading on on the critical areas of innovation, on the economics of the day and the economics of tomorrow, I recommend everybody go to itif.org. Dr. Atkinson is an internationally recognized scholar and a widely published author whom the New Republic has correctly named as one of the, the most important thinkers about innovation. Washingtonian Magazine has called him a tech titan. Government Technology Magazine has judged him to be one of the top 
25 Doers, Dreamers, and Drivers of Information Technology. And the Wharton Business School has awarded him the Wharton Infosys Business Transformation Award. He's the number of he's the author of too many papers to to mention, and a number of books, including most recently Big is Beautiful, debunking the mythology of small business. I can tell you from knowing Rob for many years now, he is really one of the best thinkers for going against the grain, for being an iconoclast. He holds a Ph.D. in city and regional planning from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he was awarded the prestigious Joseph E. Pogue Fellowship. Rob, thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Cliff. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, We're going to talk about a topic that everybody cares about very much, but is often hard to define and often hard to analyze. And that topic is going to be manufacturing competitiveness. Instinctively, we all know that competitiveness is important, but we also know it's a broad term. It suggests price product differentiation, and many other things. Rob, what, in your view, are the key metrics of competitive strength in the U.S. manufacturing sector? In other words, which numbers should we all be following? Well, the problem is when you look at it from the entire economy as opposed to an individual firm, the problem is there is no good single measure. And the reason for that is simple. One measure of manufacturing competitive strength is, are we running a trade surplus or a deficit in manufactured goods? And on that measure, we're not doing very well. Uh, we're running up you know, pretty sizable. I, don't, I haven't looked at it recently, four or five, six hundred billion dollar goods, five hundred billion dollar goods deficit. So that would suggest we're not being competitive. But you also have to put that in the context of the value of the dollar. Because if we are running a trade deficit and the dollar is incredibly strong, in other words, we have to sell our goods at a high price and we import goods at a low price, then you know, we're more competitive than we might than that trade deficit number would indicate. Unfortunately, even though the dollar has been up in the last year, uh, you know, over the last uh, 10 or 12 years, the trade-weighted value of the dollar is down. So, uh, in other words, we're running a big trade deficit and the value of the dollar has gone down. So I would suggest overall we're not as competitive as we need to be. You know, competitors have certainly come into our lives. In fact, since the beginning, since 2000, a fair number of new competitors have emerged to, I'll call it, challenge U.S. manufacturing, and particularly in Asia. And at the same time, growth challenges have grown in many industrialized powers. Demographic changes have, have made structural economic growth more of a challenge. Does this give – you know, I'm wondering, does this give us a, a patchwork, a sort of an, an even picture where we're strong – the U.S. manufacturing sector is strong against some countries and regions, but notably, notably lagging against others? Well – uh, I don't think that's quite the right way to look at it. Yes, we run a trade surplus with a few countries. We run a trade deficit with many, many more. Um, it, it's a mistake, as some have said, um, that maybe the administration thinks that. I don't know that they do. It's certainly a mistake to believe that we should be running a trade surplus in manufacturing with every country. We, that, that's yep. ridiculous. We can't do that and shouldn't do that. But on net, on balance, we should. So if we're running a trade deficit with the Germans, which we are, uh, we should be running a trade surplus with the Mexicans, let's just say. 
Um, but we're not generally doing that. I, and obviously, the big kahuna is China, where we're running a big, a pretty big, sizable trade deficit in manufacturing goods. You know, a lot of the challenge is that some of these countries just frankly aren't importing enough. It's not that we're um, it's not that we're necessarily importing too much, but the Chinese, for example, could import significantly more of our manufacturing goods, particularly high-value-added, more innovation-based goods than they are. Hmm. You know, Rob, having having spent a, a, a chunk of my career with manufacturers and studying manufacturing, um, supply chains have gotten longer, uh, more sophisticated, more interesting. So I, I'm going to put a thought out there. How has the emergence of increasingly long and sophisticated global manufacturing supply chains changed the nature of global manufacturing competitiveness? I've made the argument that a country versus country model of global competitiveness is from 30 years ago. It's an increasingly antiquated paradigm in a world of multi-country supply chains where any one product could be you know, manufactured in 11 countries. Do you agree that we have to re- sort of rethink our, the economics of um, global competition in light of these supply chains that cut across so many countries? Well, I think one – at the end of the day, uh, countries are not companies. Uh, countries, uh, the, the leaders of a, of a country are rightly focused on the economic well-being of their, of their citizens, and, and a lot of that is going to be the economic well-being of their workers. And so if you don't have reasonably strong firms – you can't have healthy workers. Uh, that's, that's by definition. So certainly looking only at, at firms, uh, you're right, Cliff, you know, the 30-year-old paradigm was if GM is doing well, the U.S. is doing well. Well, today the GM, or using any big company example, their supply chains may be very, are very extended. Oftentimes they're importing their own goods into the right. U.S., um, but that's still, if you look at it from a national interest perspective or a worker interest perspective, that still can be a challenge if overall you're not producing enough. Um, now, it's always better if we're going to import, uh, uh, you know, uh, some kind of product. It's always better that we're importing it from an American company who's producing it overseas than a foreign company that's producing it overseas uh, because you get all the – uh, you get all the sales and engineering and design and, say, and ma- management, all of that talent that's based in the U.S., and you're supporting that. But at the end of the day, a country like the United States still needs to be able to produce enough that we have, that there are customers around the world for it. Uh, to, I mean, one, one economist quipped one time, you know, what, what, what is the purpose of exports? It's to pay for our imports. Yeah, right. um, and as long as we're importing more than we're exporting, that, 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 the reason why that's a challenge, by the way, is that that just fundamentally is like the national debt. Um, you look at these countries like, for example, China, which every year is essentially putting $250 billion worth of things on boats and sending them to us with nothing in return. They're not getting anything in return. They're getting an IOU. They're getting a promissory note that says, yeah, at some point in time, uh, we've got these dollar bills, and we can, we can cash them for, for real things. So in the future, only one of two things can happen. Um, we're going to have to give them more things, which means that we're going to have we're gonna, our, more of our production will be exported. But that means we'll keep less of it ourselves. Or the value of the currency is going to have to go way, way down in order to essentially pay for that debt. 
so I think it is it is certainly different. You're right than it was, but it's not necessarily doesn't get us off the hook. You know that currency is is always something of a quagmire. Um, we, we've seen times in the post-crisis era uh, where the United States is you know the strong country in the world, in the developed world, and the and in the rest of the world. Which means that we quote unquote get the very dubious award of having a higher dollar than we would otherwise do. Uh, that uh, that that's you know that's a, it's a double edged sword. We're the stronger country, but we have uh, often have a dollar position that is difficult for our manufacturers. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's one of the problems also is that most of the people who look at that question, whether they're economic pundits or journalists or, frankly, heads of the U.S. Treasury Department, um, there's there's two ways of looking at that. If you're looking at it from sort of Wall Street perspective or the financial community's perspective, a strong dollar is really, really good. By definition, you're holding all these dollars. You want them to be worth a lot. Looking at it, though, from a Main Street perspective or really a manufacturing street perspective, a strong dollar is not good. It's essentially a, it's, um, it's, it's essentially a huge headwind that you have to push, you have to fight to overcome or a tax. It's, if the dollar goes up 10%, it means that any U.S. manufacturer who's competing overseas, either with imports or trying to export, it's a, just essentially a price raise of 10% on your products and a price decline of 10% on somebody else's products. So I, I think the overall financial community in the U.S. Uh, gets the dollar issue wrong more than they get it right. Um, but you're right. Uh, it's really hard for the U.S. in some ways to be competitive because the currency is the, you know, the last resort for so many countries. That's why it's so important for us to have a, a strong manufacturing policy to help our companies you know, get 10 percent more productive, for example, if currency is going to go up 10 percent. Let's let's switch to a, a little bit more of a ground-up perspective on this. Some economists, many economists, have raised concerns about weak entrepreneurship in the U.S. But you and the team at ITIF have, have produced some interesting and detailed research on technology-based startups. Can you summarize for us what you have found in, in that research and offer a thought on its implications for U.S. global manufacturing competitiveness? Sure. So this is all in the context of my colleague Mike Lind and I wrote a book for MIT Press last spring called Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. And one of the arguments that a lot of people make today is that the the rate that what explains the declining rate of new business formation. So new business starts are are, are down. They've been down, gone down for sort of 15 years or so. And one of the arguments is that, well, it's these big monopolies uh, – Big companies are getting too big. They're crushing the competitors, and they're squeezing out new firms. And the basic point we make in the book is that really is not the case. Uh, there, there are industries that have gotten less concentrated. In other words, there's more competition, and they've seen declining startups. And there's industries that have gotten more concentrated, and they've seen growing startups. So that's the wrong answer. Then when you dig down a little deeper, what you find are really two things. One, as you, as you alluded to, if you just look at high-tech startups, so startups that are in advanced industries like medical devices or semiconductors or biotechnology, um, you see uh, actually very strong uh, startup, uh, about 20 to 30% more than um, – than, than, 
see about startups about 20 or 30 percent more than what you saw than what you saw, uh, say, 10 years ago. So that yeah. and that level, that, that's pretty healthy. What the problem is that you also see, um, you do see a decline in manufacturing startups. And there, I do believe that that's a problem, number one. Okay. And number two, that a lot of that, I think, has to do with the rise of China uh, and, and the pulling out of a lot of supply chains from the U.S. over to China and other countries, including Mexico, where it's harder for a small startup to sometimes they get in being a supplier, and sometimes if those suppliers are now overseas, it's harder. Okay, a lot of cross-currents there. Um, Moving sort of up one notch from that, uh, we are in a period of rapid process disruption in manufacturing, something that I always find fascinating and have been focusing on. With almost daily discussions about robotics, additive manufacturing, digitization, and many, many other things. Let, let's look at this from a competitive point of view. And I'm going to ask you, what does any one country need to do to stay competitive in the manufacturing process innovation race? In other words, is there a role for public policy in the United States to maximize our benefits from these new manufacturing technologies? Absolutely. So we, uh, ITIF, just wrote a report looking at robot adoption in manufacturing. Uh, In other words, what countries have the most robots uh, in their manufacturing sector as a share of their workers? And when you look at that, what you find is that the United States actually isn't all that doing all that well, particularly compared to our major competitors like Germany, uh, Japan. Uh, it turns out Korea is way, way ahead of us, uh, pr- probably on the order of five times more robots, uh, believe it or not. Uh, you know, ama- amazing robot adoption in, in Korea. But even other countries that you wouldn't expect, um, Taiwan, um, uh, Singapore. So what's going on there? I, I think one of the things that's going on there is those other countries have national policies to help their, ro- their manufacturers adopt robotic technology and other advanced technologies. For example, they let, you, they let the company write those, uh, mm. those uh, investments off for tax purposes, or they give them tax credits. Uh, they have all sorts of other programs. So absolutely, uh, there's a whole new wave of manufacturing technology coming, and uh, you know, it, government should be helping, particularly our small and mid-sized companies, uh, do better. Well, it, it's uh, it, now it's hard to have a discussion, at least in my view, discussion about technology and new technologies without then moving to uh, the workforce. And of course, we all know in Washington there has been decades of discussion about inadequate human capital in the domestic domestic U.S. manufacturing workforce. Does your thinking and analysis suggest that we have an actual deficit of needed? manufacturing-related skills, or is there some other kind of market failure related to wages, um, market structure issues? Do we actually have a skills deficit, as is so often said, in manufacturing? Well, I think there's really two things going on, and and it's hard to know for sure. I, I suppose if you're a manufacturer, you know, you're trying to hire people, you you know best. Yeah. Uh, but from a sort of economist perspective or public policy perspective, really I think there's two parts. One is, you know, U.S. manufacturing wages actually haven't been growing all that much um, compared to, say, some of our competitors like like Germany. And so, certainly, at, for one group of manufacturing workers, uh, 
the fact that wages may not have grown all that much, the fact that there has been a lot of layoffs, uh, particularly in the in the 2000s, sends a message to people. Can I really make a career in this business? Do I really want to go here when there have been so many layoffs and you see GM laying off workers? So I do think that's real. But at the same time, um, there, there does appear to be strong evidence that there is a shortage of particular kinds of skills in manufacturing, particularly as we move to digital manufacturing or smart manufacturing. Um, there, aren't, there really aren't enough workers, uh, particularly in certain parts of the country, who have those sorts of skills of data, computer science, and other kinds of skills, software skills that today's manufacturers increasingly need. No, it's kind of a race in some ways as as we um as as new technology, new technological paradigms sort of permeate at least let's say our big manufacturing companies. The uh just ipso facto the existing workforce has a lot of catching up to do. Because they are placed absolutely. in a new kind of work situation. Yeah, absolutely. A new kind of work situation. And also frankly, uh getting new workers to enter, uh making sure that they have the skills. You know, you look at a country like Austria or Germany, where they have a very, very robust system to help both new workers and existing workers get trained on the latest cutting-edge machine uh, environments um, in partnership with their industries. Uh, we don't do that in the U.S., really. It's hit and miss, and so that's something we should be doing as a country, absolutely. Well, actually, you read my mind for the final question. Finally, I'm going to ask you the same question about human capital as I did about technology. Does the U.S. need an explicit national policy to confront, you know, competitive issues in our manufacturing workforce? Or, and the alternative, over time, will markets by themselves eventually produce the needed human capital for, for 21st century manufacturing jobs? No, we have to have a policy. And here's the reason markets okay. alone won't do it is, is – is Skills are an externality, what economists call an externality. For a lot of companies, if you put a lot of money into your workers, um, you may lose them. Uh, they may decide to go to work for your competitor, and you've put all that money in, and you haven't gotten anywhere near the return you want. So um, at minimum, one of the things that we should be doing is some sort of tax incentive for companies who you know, invest in their workers so that they are going to invest enough. Um, but also, there's a what economists call this this mismatch, uh, uh, because if you're a worker, if you're a company who really wants to invest in human capital and new equipment and new machinery, you send signals to the community, to the community college, to, to workers, to high schools, that it's important to raise your skills. But you don't want to do that unless you know you can get those skilled workers. So it's a little bit of a chicken or egg issue there. Uh, if you don't have the workers, you're not going to invest. If you don't invest, the workers won't want to get those skills. So absolutely, we need a we need a national policy. A lot of it needs to be carried out in partnership with states and local communities and groups of manufacturers and trade associations and the like. It needs to be regionalized and flexible. But the federal government needs to step up to the plate and really uh, invest in that and help coordinate it. On that very important note, I'm going to say, Rob Atkinson, thank you so much for joining us today. Cliff, my pleasure. Thank you. Folks, as um, as Dr. Atkinson often does, he, he's identified some challenges. In the last episode, we had Michael Mandel, who talked about the promise of digitization of new technologies what it can do for manufacturing. Today we've talked about some challenges in many areas. Competitiveness, uh, our, our relationship in, uh, competitively with key countries in the world, 
entrepreneurship, well, not not as bad as the overall number suggests. You know, there is nonetheless challenges for manufacturing. Technology, are we using it as well as other um, uh, other countries? Well, I, I think we have some issues there. I think we have to, as Dr. Atkinson suggested, I think we have to look at where we are in relation to other countries. And probably the most complicated and, and the, the, the uh, policy, for, at least from a policy perspective, is aligning our skills with the needs of uh, a rapidly changing 21st century manufacturing sector. So that's what we're going to be talking. These are the issues we're going to be talking about on Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman. That we'll talk about the promise, but we'll talk about the perils, and we'll talk about the policy needs, and we'll talk about what markets can do. That's it for today. This is Cliff Waldman reminding you that manufacturing matters, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.